Well, today is Family Worship Sunday, and that means we have our kids aged kindergarten through fifth grade in with us. They would normally be up at G-Kids, and so I'd like to have a visual illustration to help them remember things, and I know most of you adults aren't going to complain about this either, and it's one that's been used many times over to illustrate faith, but I want to kind of put a slightly different twist on it today, so Connor's going to help me. Come up here, Connor, real quick. This is the advantage of sitting on the front row is you always get picked on, right? Come right here by me. All right, so you know what's going on, right? We kind of prepped you on that. So we're going to do a, the, the old trust fall, okay? The old trust fall. And, and so in this uh, illustration, what you're going to do is you're going to stand here at the edge of the, of the stage, and you're going to turn backwards, and then you're going to just free fall without worrying or looking. You're just going to close your eyes and just fall straight backwards, all right? And so... Mitch, if you don't mind getting uh, Liam and uh, Beckett up here to help with this, they're going to be the ones that catch him, all right? They didn't know they were going to do this. All right, so who did you think? Right here, right here, guys, right here. So uh, what, was, what were you told? Who was going to catch you? you, you and yeah, exactly. All right, so why, why wouldn't you want them to catch you? Because they're older. And they're little. We're older and they're little? Yeah. Yeah, right. Thanks, guys. That's all I needed y'all for. Have a seat. Appreciate it. So, so let's think about faith for a second, all right? I put a definition for you by a guy named William Lane Craig on the screen. And faith is trust or commitment to what you think you have good reason to believe is true. It's putting your trust in something that you believe that it's true and you're going to give yourself to that. So as we say we're building our lives on the firm foundation of Jesus, we're building our life on Jesus because we have learned to trust him. So just like Connor would not free fall into Liam and Beckett's arms because he doesn't have good reason to think that they would be there, at least properly, they would try their best, but not to support him and to catch him the way that they should. But enter his dad, Jerry, and myself. You trust your dad with your life. How about me? Do you trust me? Kind of, okay, all right, cool. All right, so your dad, will let him do most of the heavy lifting here. All right, and, and I'll just help out a little bit. So all you're gonna do, Connor, is look straight ahead, close your eyes, and just fall straight back into our arms, okay? All right, I'll say go. Ready, go. All right, that wasn't bad, was it? No, that was terrifying. <laughs> Thanks. Thanks, Connor, appreciate it. Give him a hand. And so I want you to think about faith in that way. I want you to think about faith as Jesus today gives reasons why you should have confidence in him in order to build your life upon him, what your definition in your head is faith. Because there's a lot of misunderstandings about faith out there. A lot of people want to spend faith as just hoping in something that may come true with no really evidence or credible um, reasons to believe what they believe. But Jesus gives us credible reasons and ultimately, we're going to see the most credible reason for us is the fact that he rose from the dead. Scripture says that faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. So in other words, faith involves trusting in something you cannot explicitly prove, but you have sound reasons to believe that it's true. You, you have really good reasons to believe he believed that Jerry and I would catch him because he trusts his dad and he trusts me a little bit, I guess. So, so he has good reasons to fall, but he did not have faith in the other guys. And so faith is about having reasons to believe. And Jesus gives us reasons to believe that he is trustworthy and he's faithful. Did you know that 
about half the world or maybe more than half of the world believe in God or a supreme being or supreme power. Did you know that? About half the world. And it would be a lot bigger than that if you threw out China because China pretty much is a, is a totally atheist country, like 4%. And so you, you have people who naturally, as Romans 1 says, naturally want to believe in a God. All right, they, they know that there's got to be more. There's got to be something else. It's just not me figuring my way out because I evolved here and, and landed here on this planet by chance. And so people believe that there's a God, but, but which God? You have Judaism, you have Islam, you have Christianity, the biggest monotheistic religions in the world. That means one God in the world. And so how do you know which one to believe in? Well, Jesus gives us clarity on that today. Because in verse 30 of our text, he says, I and the Father, he says, I and God the Father are one. So Jesus claimed to be the absolute revelation of God. Jesus claims to be the absolute um, revelation of God himself. And we can trust him. So as we look at our text today in John chapter 10, we'll finish off this chapter. Let's consider the words of Jesus and not just Sure, I believe in Jesus. I got my salvation in Jesus. But are you truly, like we sang, are you building your life upon Jesus? No matter what comes your way, do you know that he is for you, not against you? And Calvary proves it. So let's pray, and we'll look at Jesus' words. Father God, we thank you for your word that gives us truth. God, that it points us to the one and the only one who we can build our life upon and we can really trust that you're looking for our good and, and God's glory in all that we do because Jesus was who he said he was. And we put our faith and our hope and our trust fully in him. God, I pray for those here today who may not be believers. They've never accepted your forgiveness and put their faith in you for salvation, God. I pray that today will be their day to see Jesus and have the faith that you give them to respond to his call for salvation. And God, for those of us as Christians, as we go through things in life, and inevitably as suffering will come into our life, God, that in those moments we can just be glad that we put our faith and trust in you because we know that only you can sustain us and give us any kind of hope for the future. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So over the last few weeks, Jesus has been showing himself to be the true shepherd. Right? He's been given this very visual illustration as being the good shepherd, the true shepherd, the beautiful shepherd. And this is all back from con in contrast to the religious leaders of the day back in chapter 9 where we saw where they rejected the blind man, told him he was a sinner, and that, that he, they kicked him out of synagogue, excommunicated him. So Jesus is using this parable to contrast himself, the perfect leader, the perfect shepherd, with the bad leadership that Israel was receiving at that time. And the shepherds that Israel had, Jesus made it clear, these shepherds came to kill still and destroy the sheep. Judaism at the time of Christ was nothing more than a relig religion made up of ethics and morals. It had lost its concept of having faith or trust in God. And so God made it clear all the way back in Genesis 14 in the foundational material that the Jews believed to be the root of Judaism, their truth. God made it clear how he accepts people. Genesis 15, 6 says, Abram believed the Lord, and it was counted to him as righteousness. It was counted to him as righteousness because he believed the Lord. And so God despises 
work systems. In first century Judaism, looked to the law, the commandments, the sacrifices, circumcision, the feast, and they came to this conclusion, the meticulous external obedience to the law is the basis for God accepting us. The meticulous obedience to all these things, that's how God accepts us. And so they stacked their traditions on top of God's laws just to be sure that they were keeping the rules and they elevated the rules over faith. And so what was missing was the fact that these rules, everything that happened was to point them to God, that they were to see that God is the great reward, not their self-righteousness from obeying and keeping these things. And so that is not at all to say that obedience isn't important. In fact, the nature of true faith, if you truly have faith, the nature of true faith begins to work and to obey and to keep God's commands and want to please God through obedience. So faith and works are not at odds with one another in any way, shape, or form. Works are the byproduct of true faith. And so the religious system of Jesus' day, they just heap this impossible burden upon the people. And these people were broken. In Jesus' words, he says to them, come to me. All you are weary and burdened, and I'll give you rest. He says, take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest. Rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. So Jesus is confronting this system that kept piling on to people and burdening and weighing down people, and they were missing God in their attempts to earn this righteousness through their efforts and through their works, and the people just were at the end. They could not do it. They couldn't keep up, and Jesus shows up on the scene. He says, come to me. And so when their long-awaited Messiah finally came, the religious leaders in Jesus' day were too blinded by their own self-righteousness to even recognize who Jesus was. So Jesus declares himself boldly to them in verse 30 of our text, I and the Father are one. We're one. We are one. And what do they do? Not, they don't listen to him, that's for sure. They go crazy. Verse 31, they picked up stones again to stone him. All right, They pick up stones. They want to put him to death. This is the ultimate blasphemy that he would be claiming to be equal with God the Father. More on that in a minute. But I want to look at this statement for a second from our own help and our own need to understand theology in this statement. The fact that, this, that Jesus makes this statement is incredibly important. It's, it's a critical statement regarding his deity, who he was, he was God, and the nature of God himself. He says, I and my Father. So in that statement, he reveals that the Father and the Son are not the same person. The Father and the Son, not the same person, but he says, I and the Father are one, which shows that the Father and the Son are equal in nature. They're equal in nature. So to put it in a really succinct manner, it is one God, but distinct in his person. One God, but distinct in his person. Now, everybody doesn't believe that. In fact, the church, in the church history, there's been people who come along who say things and try to create a theology that disagrees with that. There was a guy named Arius in the fourth century. He was a priest, and he denied the deity of Jesus, believing that Jesus was created by God as the first act of creation. And his belief system, which was later referred to as Arianism, was denounced by the church as a false doctrine. 
So you would think way back in the fourth century, this was settled, no more debate over this, but still today, this is still under fire, Jesus' deity and who he was. And look, I'm all about confronting Christianity where we divide and go to war over things that aren't essential and aren't important. The church just has a way of killing our own wounded, attacking our own people, seeing other churches and other people of faith who really truly believe that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. Nobody comes to the Father but through him, and it's by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone, that we some way go to war against these people over preferences. And, and so I, I want to warn us never to do that. But when it comes to the person and nature of Jesus Christ, this is an issue that isn't petty at all. It's an issue to go to war over. It's the bullseye issue, so to speak, that we must agree on to have fellowship as Christians. And, and I hate to call out names of denominations or, or religions, but the Jehovah's Witnesses and Mormons today still have a form of Arianism. They don't accept the deity of Jesus in the terms that Orthodox Christianity over the years has accepted it to be. And so that's why there's still this struggle in America, and there should be, because a lot of times Mormons and Jehovah's Witness, although outstanding people, moral people, yet still are on a critical, decritical issue, they are unwilling to accept sound doctrine and Orthodox faith. So you can absolutely be friends. They're great people. Be friends with people. But we can't have biblical fellowship. And in our day and age, that's looked at as very rude and, and arrogant and proud. It's like, who, who do you to say that you have it right? Well, 2,000 years of church history says that this is the right way to see Jesus and his deity. So this is not thinking we're superior. It's knowing what the scripture says, what Jesus says, and standing firm on that, knowing you can't have biblical fellowship. And when I say biblical fellowship, that means that you sharpen and help and encourage and be part of one another's lives in a way that you're shaping each other to be more like Jesus Christ. That's by, what I mean by you cannot have biblical fellowship in that way, but you can definitely be friends. And so Jesus makes a statement, this incredible, bold, and important statement and the Jews respond by picking up stones to stone him. Now, look, you haven't studied this out. A few of you maybe read this ahead of time. But you may not realize that even among, um, in our day, among biblical scholars, that Jesus has said, like, he never claimed to be God. Jesus never claimed to be the Messiah. We talked about that a little bit last week. Look, there's no mistake here. Jesus made it clear that he was claiming to be God, otherwise these religious leaders would not have responded the way that they responded in this hostility. They knew exactly what Jesus was saying. And so he was saying that he was equal with God the Father, and that is why they reacted as they did. Verse 32, Jesus answers them as, as they're reaching and looking in their temple grounds. They're looking for stones to, to throw at Jesus. And you think, why would there be stones there? Well, Herod's temple, as we call it, was under construction at this time. I'm sure there was construction material laying around. They went for it. Jesus answers him and says, I have shown you many good works from the Father. For which of them are you going to stone me? So Jesus is saying he's offered many demonstrations of proof regarding his identity and his, his intentions. He's shown again and again that he works in conjunction with his Father. But they refuse to even consider his works, the miracles that he's done, because in their mind there's no possibility, there's no way that Jesus could be who he claimed to be. 
Back when our kids were little, and pick on Harrison, I think this was Harrison, but they were probably all guilty of this. Um, yeah, this is where pastor's kids love the sermon, I'll just to let you know. Um, they, 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 when he was a little guy, like two or three, four, I remember he thought that if he covered his eyes, that we couldn't see him. Anybody remember that with your kids? That like they, they think because that stage they're in, they, they cover up and they can't see that you can't see them. Now, that was funny and I thought it was interesting and I was like, is my kid the only one that does that, right? And, and interestingly enough, I went to research this out and in 2022, the University of Cambridge did a study on this very thing because many of the children, they actually felt that they were, that they were hidden as long as they didn't even make eye contact with the researcher who was doing the study. So if they didn't make eye contact, they looked away, then that person could not see them, and that's the way that kids think, all right? And, and so they think that if as long as you don't see me and I don't see you, then we don't see each other, right? And, and that's a childish way of thinking. But in a way, the religious leaders, with just a few exceptions during Jesus' time, were unwilling to make that eye contact with Jesus to really see Jesus, and honestly, as Nicodemus did, take an honest look at who Jesus was and who he claimed to be, because they were so, so stuck in their system, and they were so locked into their religious way of doing things, and the power they had from that, that they just always found a way to explain Jesus' works out, out of the picture. They're like, I just explain it away. He's, he's got to be a demon. He's got to be controlled by a demon. There's something going on here other than what we're seeing. So they just explained it away. They weren't willing to see Jesus and to really acknowledge the possibility that he really might be one with the Father. Verse 33, the Jews answered him, It is not for a good work that we're going to stone you, but for blasphemy, because you, being a man, make yourself God. So again, no matter what they observed, they just would not believe in Jesus. They just wouldn't believe. And faith is hard. I can, as I walk through the Gospels, as a few years ago we walked through the Gospel of Mark, I can relate and I hope you can too, and you won't just write off the Pharisees and the religious leaders as like idiots or something. I can relate to the fact that this was such an upsetting thing because they truly knew God to be one. God said, I'm one. In, in their Old Testament, in, in the, the, the books of the law, he said, I'm one. God is one. And so to see Jesus would have just blown all their categories of, of who God is. And here he's claiming to be God. And faith is very, very, very difficult. We've talked about this throughout the series about how faith is sometimes is, is a big struggle. And for them, it's understandable. And it's hard for us to trust something that's invisible. When I was youth pastor, that was the number one complaint I got from students. It's just hard to believe in a God sometimes who isn't there, who I, I, I can't feel him and touch him and interact with him. You know, it's not just younger people who feel that way. Sometimes when we get into a bind and, and tough situations and, and our faith wavers and we think, God, are you really there? God, do you, do you really, really, are you working? Are you active in this world? And, and you begin to struggle with faith. And that's what the, the, the Jewish leaders, they just did not believe Jesus. They didn't trust Jesus. They could not have faith in Jesus. And you know what this illustrates to me? That even having visual proof isn't enough, all right? Because we think sometimes if I just had visual proof, if I could just like see Jesus and touch him and interact with him, then my faith would be like 100% certain. No, it wouldn't be. The Jews are a perfect example of this. They always found ways to explain away Jesus' work because faith requires, get this, 
relinquishing control of our lives. And we're not very good at that. Relinquishing control and saying, God, I want to treasure you. I want to trust you. I want to exalt you in my life and make you central, not myself. And that's very, very hard to do. So God is asking us to treasure what we can't see more than what we can. And that's difficult. I read a great quote by John MacArthur this last week. He says this. He says, faith is the ability to take what is in the future and give it present substance. Faith is the ability to take what is in the future and give it present substance. And he goes on to illustrate that we do this all the time, okay? We have a vacation that we're looking forward to. And when the day's rough at work tomorrow on a Monday morning, you like think about the future vacation and where you're going, and you think how, much, how great it's going to be. And in that moment, you find some sense of satisfaction, some peace in that anticipation of the future. Or maybe that it's just getting to the weekend. If I can just make it to the weekend, then it's going to be okay, right? And, and so we're anticipating something in the future, and it gives current substance to the moment that we're dealing with. This was illustrated, and I was meeting with some guys the other day, and one of them mentioned Pavlo's dog. And I said, I already had that in my notes to say, Pavlo's dog. You, you remember this study in psychology where they would give the dogs a, a treat, and the dogs would come running, and they would give the dogs, and the dogs got in this pattern where as soon as they opened the treats or gave the treats, the dogs would come salivating and, and, and come and get the food. Well, then they began to ring the bell or do some, something to call the dogs, but there would be no treat, no reward at the end. And what would the dogs do? They would still be salivating because in their minds they were like, okay, guys, the food's coming, right? It's coming. So we're excited in the moment. Look, we're, we're, we're thrilled about this. And so that's what faith, the way it kind of operates, is that we know that God is in control. And we know Jesus died and was buried and rose again. And we bank our trust and hope on that historical truth and reality, even when the moment is full of struggle and disappointment and difficulty. Because God is going to do what he says he's going to do. And by faith, life is more meaningful because we bank on the promises of Jesus. And so living by faith in the future promises of God is critical to that abundant life that Jesus promised. And you won't experience the abundant life that Jesus promised. And some of you may be sitting here today like, I've, I've tried Christianity, I've been involved in church for a while, and life is not any better whatsoever. Are you banking on the future promises of the Scripture? When Jesus says, I'm with you always, even to the end of the world, does that thought resonate in your mind in those moments when things are difficult and life's hard? That I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go away, I'm coming again to take you with me. And in that moment, in those difficulties and those struggles and that suffering, as you deal with death and cancer and difficult things in your life, do you look to the future promises of Jesus and do you find moment in that moment hope and reassurance because Jesus fulfills his promises and he does what he says he's going to do? Well, the religious leaders could not accept Jesus. And so they say, we're going to stone you because you claim to be God and their Old Testament law made it clear, Leviticus 24, 16. I mentioned this a few weeks back when they were going to stone him the first time that Moses said that blasphemy is punishable by stoning. And I also mentioned the fact that during this time period, they did not have the ability to 
uh, to execute capital punishment. They did not have that authority. And so you can imagine in this moment these religious leaders being so upset, so emotional, that they just, I don't, we don't even care, right? We're going to get stones, Jesus, and we're going to throw them at you and kill you because what you said about God being equal to God, that's just, you can't do that, Jesus. But Jesus holds them off, and he points to Scripture, and he gives them something to consider before they start hurling those stones at him. Look at verse 34. Jesus answered them, Is it not written in your law? I said, You are gods. If he called them gods to whom the word of God came, and Scripture cannot be broken, do you say of him whom the Father consecrated and sent into the world, You are blaspheming? Because I said, I am the Son of God. And so what Jesus does here, he quotes Scripture, and he's not saying your law as if it's not his law. He's, what he's, he's getting their attention. All right, remember the moment. All right, this is a, an intense moment where they're trying to execute Jesus. And he says, hold on a second, all right? Look at your law. Look in your Scriptures. Let's see what we agree on here. All right, your Scripture the authority that, that the Scripture says, and it can't be broken. So he's appealing to the Word of God, which they claim to know and believe. And he says that you need to pay attention to what the Scripture says because just because you don't like it doesn't mean that it can't, you know, it, it can't be broken. It's, it's true. It's authoritative. And so it's, Jesus is quoting here Psalm 82. Now, this is one of those passages that some of you maybe haven't looked at in a while or you're looking at for the first time and you're thinking, I don't get this, what Jesus is saying here. Well, as a lot of controversial things in Scripture, there are a lot of opinions. I'm going to give you what I feel like the right interpretation of this. It's backed up by a lot of scholarship, but obviously you can find many different opinions on these things. So what is Jesus saying? Well, if you go back and read Psalm 82, some of this becomes a lot more clear, all right? It becomes clear because Jesus is referring to a psalm where the psalmist appealed to God to judge the so-called gods, for their failure to maintain justice and righteousness. So I encourage you to go back and read this psalm. He's writing to, the psalmist is writing to gods who are, and it seems very, very um, straightforward in the psalm if you read it, these are people who were set apart to judge and maintain righteousness in the culture. And in fact, the Hebrew word that's used for God in this context most often is Yahweh God, all right? So that's why when you look at this, it's so, whoa, because he's saying gods, there's, there's gods, these gods. What is that about? Are we gods? But in other scriptures, this exact same word is used at times to refer to angels, pagan deities, and even human kings or judges, as in Psalms 82. And the word twice is used actually for Moses. And so we see that it's clear from the context that the gods are the men whom God appointed to rule and judge the people. So the point of Psalm 82 is that earthly judges must act with impartiality and true, judge, and true justice because even judges, even those who are gods or rulers or authorities, they're going to be judged by the ultimate judge, God himself. And so that's what Jesus is appealing to. And so he's using this, and his attentions here are to show that the Scriptures they believe— as he said, it is written in your law, show that the word God is legitimately used to refer to others other than God himself. And if there are other scriptures whom God, being the author of scripture, can address as God or the sons of the Most High, on what biblical basis 
Should anyone object to Jesus saying, I am God's son? So you see what Jesus is doing here? He's pointing out their hypocrisy. He's showing them from the word that, look, you're going crazy, but you need to look at the word of God for a minute and the things that you say you believe. And so it accomplishes its purpose, right? It slows them down. They don't respond. They're not throwing stones at him. He's able to push forward at this point and continue on with his evidence that he is God's son and he's from God. Verse 37, if I am not doing the work of my father, then do not believe me. But if I do them, he's saying, look at my works. If I do them, even though you do not believe me, believe the works that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I am the Father. So even if they can't bring themselves to believe that he is who he says he is, what he's wanting them to do is open your eyes, all right? Don't stand there with your eyes closed trying to act like this doesn't exist. Open your eyes and honestly evaluate my ministry, Jesus is saying. Truly see and try to put your bias away, your preconceived agendas away, and just deal with me and the stuff that I've done, the miracles I've done, the works that I've done, and come to grips with that like Nicodemus did. Even though Nicodemus came to Jesus at night and he came to talk to Jesus, he honestly wanted to hear Jesus out and he wanted to see was Jesus for real or not. He opened his eyes and he listened to Jesus. And there's evidence that Nicodemus became a Jesus follower. In fact, in chapter 19, we'll see at some point that he anointed Jesus' body for burial. So it appears that maybe he became a believer. So they would not listen. They would not humbly hear Jesus out. Verse 39, so cooler heads prevail. Instead of stoning him, they move in to arrest him. Look at verse 39. Again, they sought to arrest him, but he escaped from their hands. And so if you remember last week, we said that the word that was used was almost like an encircling of Jesus, that they gathered around Jesus, very hostile, right from the get-go. They weren't there to learn from him. They were there to harass him. And so they're gathered around him, and the text doesn't tell us how he escaped. It doesn't give us those details. But the bottom line is, and we've seen this through the gospel, it just, it's not Jesus' time. It's not time for, in God's plan for him to be arrested and crucified. And so whatever way that God gave for Jesus to be able to escape that moment, Jesus moved out and he left the crowd. He left that encirclement of people. And that shouldn't surprise us because there's this, sometimes we forget as we're looking at the humanity of Jesus and as we see Jesus walking on this earth and doing miracles and things that as, as a human being, we see him in bodily form. Sometimes we forget that he is 100% God as well and he's capable of whatever he wants to do. And in fact, in John 18, Verse six, four through six, when they came to arrest Jesus, let me read these verses for you. I think it's going to be on the screen as well. Then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, this is at his arrest, came forward and said to them, whom do you seek? They answered, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus said to them, I am he. What happens next? Judas, who betrayed him, was standing with them. When Jesus said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. All right. So you see the authority of Jesus when he wants to state his authority and declare his authority and who he was. I am the great I am. All of a sudden they just they just fall back in fear and terror and supernatural God's ability just to move in that moment. And so we don't know exactly how Jesus again escaped from this encirclement of these hostile people, but he does. He gets away, he leaves, and he actually takes off and leaves from Jerusalem. His ministry in Jerusalem is finished. He went back, look at verse 40, he went away again across the Jordan 
to the place where John had been baptizing at first, and there he remained. And many came to him, and, and they said, John did no sign, but everything that John said about this man was true. And many believed in him there. So what's interesting to me, okay, Jerusalem, the center of worship of God, the temple, the rituals, everything about Jeru uh, Jerusalem was about Judaism. And everything about Judaism happened in Jerusalem. Yet the people who were the spiritual religious insiders rejected him. But he goes out into the countryside. He goes to the common people. And what do they do? They remember John's testimony in that very area. And they put their faith and they believe in Jesus. Again, the Jewish religious leaders. They could not humbly look at Jesus. Therefore, they lacked faith the ability to have faith. And Scripture makes it clear, without faith, it is impossible to please God. Without faith, it is impossible to please God. Let that be our head application today. Without faith, it's impossible. And so as you're living your life, if you're not living by faith, it's impossible to please God. You have to know His promises you have to be in his word, reading his promises, and you have to build your life more and more upon his promises. Without faith, it's impossible to please God. And then the heart is the rest of Hebrews 11.6. For whoever would draw near to God, you must believe that he exists. Most of you are on board with that. You believe that he exists. But here's where we a lot of times lose faith. And he rewards those who seek him. And that's our heart application. God, you, you truly reward those who humbly seek you. And what does that mean? It means being honest, as we talked about last week in the, our heart application. Search me, O oh God, know my heart. Know those wicked ways. It's honestly and truly allowing the Holy Spirit, if you're a believer, to confront those areas of your heart that you have not given over to God. Those areas where you say, you know, if I'm with this group of people, I've, I need to be that way. Right? It's, it's weird. It's awkward if I act like a Christian. And I don't really want to be a Christian around these people because it's no fun and they're going to think I'm a dud. All right? And so we, we compartmentalize our faith to the areas that we want to compartmentalize it and keep it. And then we live however we want to live in other areas of our life. And so if we're going to truly know and believe that God rewards those who seek him, we draw near to God and we believe and we live our life and we build our life upon Jesus Christ. So the hands application, ask God for humility. Asking for humility to give you the eyes of faith to trust Jesus and his promises. Will you do that? I know I read through these head, heart, hands application every week, and it's easy just to blow past this. But will you incorporate this into your prayers? God, I humbly ask you, I need you for this life. I need you not to make you work on my terms, but so that I will live for your values and your economy. It's about you, what you're doing, not about my life. Give me the eyes of faith to trust Jesus and his promises for the glory of God, for my life to point people to God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, that God will be lifted up in my life. That should be our prayer every day. And we humble ourselves and say, there's no righteousness I have. It's your righteousness, Jesus. I don't bring anything to the table today that's going to bring success 
Sure, I can make money. I can do things. I can make friends. But in your economy, nothing good happens unless I humbly depend upon you and live my life by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you so much for just this gospel of John that gives us the story of your life. And that we can historically know that you did these amazing things that you that we declare that you truly did these and they were recorded. And God, I thank you that they were written down to show us who you are. And God, help us not just to be satisfied with believing that you exist, but God, help us to take that next step of faith and truly realize that you reward us when we put our trust in your promises. And God, I pray for those right now who it's very difficult to do that because they're in the midst of their world falling apart or it just seems like life has just not been fair. And they feel like they've done the right things and yet they're not getting rewarded for that. God, help them to see in these moments their own systems of self-righteousness that they're building up and how they're being like the Pharisees, thinking that they've earned some sort of credit from you. And God, help them just to bask in the cross and the cross alone. Help them to rest in the finished work of Jesus and what you've declared them to be. And as a result, help them to live with confidence in the moment, just taking confidence for the future promises that you've given them and the fulfillment of the things that we can know to be true and find satisfaction and delight even in the moment. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.